Well, since it's the Sunday after Thanksgiving, I just have a few questions for each and every one of you here this morning. First is this, how many of you have your Christmas decorations up yet? Don't be shy, just raise your hand. Okay, got a few, all right, okay. How about this one? How many of you have had your Christmas decorations up for some time now? Anybody? Yeah, I know we do. Yeah, okay. All right, good. Here's, here's another question for you. How many of you are finished with your Christmas shopping? Anybody? Raise your hand. Okay. Yeah, I thought so. I thought so. Okay, let me ask you this. How many of you got up early on the Friday after Thanksgiving to take advantage of the sales. Anybody? Be honest. Okay, we got a few diehard shoppers in here. Awesome. So for those of you who already have your Christmas decorations up and who are at Best Buy at 4 a.m. on Black Friday, you know it's not abnormal to be thinking about Christmas this time of year. Am I right? Yeah. I mean, let's be honest. Even if you have not yet put up a Christmas tree and have not purchased one gift, Christmas is still on your minds, right? Because there's hardly a place that you can turn this time of year and not be reminded of it. And because this is the case, because we are just bombarded at this time of year with all things Christmas, whether it be ads or sales or music or movies or decor because Christmas is on all of our minds whether we want it to be or not I thought it would be appropriate on this last Sunday in November this Sunday after Thanksgiving to begin our Christmas sermon series so if you have your Bibles turn to the book of Matthew the book of Matthew for the next four weeks we're going to be looking at Matthew's take on this Christmas story. We are going to be examining Matthew's Christmas story from Matthew chapter 1 and 2. But before we begin, we need to do a bit of background about the book. And this will help you in our sermon for today and in the ones coming up in a few weeks. First, let's talk about the author of the book. Matthew wrote the book. Now that information does not come from the book itself because in the book he remains anonymous, but, but those from the early church were all in agreement that Matthew was the author. There is, there is little debate, if any, about whether or not Matthew wrote the book. A little bit about Matthew. He's also known as Levi, and he was a tax collector before Jesus called him out to be one of his 12 disciples, so that's who wrote it. Let's talk a little bit about who he was writing to. Well, Matthew doesn't mention his audience specifically in this book, but it's obvious by what he emphasizes that he had a Jewish audience in mind when writing this book. Some believe it was written to the Jewish Christians at Antioch because there were a significant number of Greek-speaking Jewish Christians in that area at the time. And also, uh, the earliest mention of the book is by Ignatius of Antioch around 110 A.D. 
So, so many believe that it was written and it was sent out to the Jewish Christians at Antioch first. We don't know for sure. All we know is that he had a Jewish audience in mind. The date, conservative scholars date the writing of Matthew between 55 and 65 A.D. It's probably written shortly after 1 Corinthians. Remember we said 1 Corinthians was written when we went through that? About 55. So it was probably written uh, shortly after that book was written. Uh, the type of book, Matthew is one of four Gospels. And when we talk about four Gospel books, it's important to note here that we're not talking about four separate Gospels. Okay? There is only one gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ is a singular message, yet there are four separate records of it. There are four different perspectives, each written with different audiences in mind, each telling of the person and work of Christ. It's also important to note that the gospel books are not biographies. You find as you read through these books that they do not give us a complete account of Jesus' life. We have accounts of his birth in the first three Gospels and one mention of his childhood in Luke and then each writer jumps ahead to his ministry in his 30s shortly before his death. So there are large amounts of information missing from Jesus' life. But again, that's not the purpose of the books. These books are written for redemptive purposes. They're written for redemptive reasons. These books give us detailed information on the great lengths that God has gone through to save sinners. They discuss Jesus' incarnation, His earthly life, His mighty acts, and His suffering death and resurrection. They give us a record of specific things about Jesus' person and work that are beneficial for our salvation. They are books that give us a saving knowledge of God. That's what the gospel books are meant to do. Now, with that in mind, let me say this. Though the books are similar in their content, though they all tell of the saving work of the Lord Jesus, it's important to note, once again, that each book is unique. Like I said a moment ago, each book is written to a certain audience. And each of the writers purposefully emphasize different aspects of Jesus' person and work. For example, Mark is written to the Christians in Rome. And he portrays Jesus as a miracle worker and as an obedient and suffering servant who calls for his followers to take up their cross and follow him. Luke wrote his gospel to the Greeks and portrayed Jesus as the perfect man who offers salvation both to Jew and Gentile alike. John focuses more on Jesus' deity and writes about him coming from heaven to earth to be the savior of the world. And Matthew also has a clear and distinct purpose for writing his book. Like I said a moment ago, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. And the purpose of his writing is to show his readers that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He is the promised one who has come to save 
And he is the victorious king who will return. In Matthew's gospel, he tells us of the Messiah who has come, the rabbi who is rejected, the lamb who was slain, the savior who is risen, and the king who is returning. That's Matthew's gospel. And because we're only going to focus on the first two chapters for the next four weeks in this book, we're going to focus primarily on that first point. We're going to talk mostly about the Messiah who has come. But what you're going to find is that in these first two chapters, there is a lot. There is a lot of meat in these first two chapters. There is quite a bit to learn about Jesus in this small section of this great book. To be honest with you, Matthew has quite a bit to say about Christ in the first 17 verses of chapter 1 that we're going to look at this morning. And I have to be honest with you, at first I was hesitant on preaching on this text of names. thought to myself, whoa, this is not going to be a whole lot here. But boy, was I wrong. There is more than enough here and in, in, in then some. I don't even have enough time to, to unpackage everything that's here, but we're going to try. What we're going to discover this morning is that Matthew is telling us some very, very important things about Jesus here in this list of names as he lists out Jesus' royal family. So let's get into it. You know, there have been times when I've been asked by students, both high school and college students, to either write a letter of, of recommendation for them to a college or seminary, or I've even been asked to be a, a reference on a resume. And when I write those letters, or at times when I receive those phone calls from employers about that particular person, I will, I will often only share information about that person that is related to that position. For example, when interviewed by a potential employer, I won't tell that employer every single detail of that person's life, where they were born, who their parents were, where they went to preschool, when they lost their first tooth, assuming I even have that information. No. I share with them information that is associated with the job. I share with them information I know the school or employer would be concerned with, and I have a clear reason for sharing what I share. I want to show why that particular person would be a good student for that, for that college or for that seminary or why that person would be a good employee for the job. For example, if a person is dependable, I want to share with that employer examples of how they're reliable. If one is a good student who is diligent when it comes to their studies, I want to make that point in my letter of recommendation. So I have a specific message that I'm trying to convey with the information I'm sharing. What I'm trying to say is this person would be an ideal student or that person would be an excellent employee. When Matthew 1, in verses 1 through 17 and beyond that, what we find is Matthew is trying to convey a specific message about the Lord Jesus. He has a specific purpose in mind for writing what he does and saying what he does. He doesn't give us every little detail. 
about Jesus. In fact, he leaves a lot out. But he gives us, the reader, what we need to know what he wants us to know. This morning, we are going to examine Jesus' royal lineage in Matthew 1, and then we're going to discuss the key truths that we learn from it. The key truths that Matthew wants us to know from this passage. So let me begin by reading this passage to you. And let me get a drink of water before I do it. I'm going to need it. Matthew 1, beginning in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron. And Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Amenadab. And Amenadab the father of Nahashan. And Nahashan the father of Salmon. And these names will be on the quiz, by the way, before you leave. So remember all these, all right? And, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David the king. And David the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. And Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah the father of Jotham. And Jotham the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh the father of Amos. And Amos the father of Josiah. And Josiah the father of Jeconiah. And his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel the father of Abid. And Abid the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim the father of Azor. And Azor the father of Zadok. And Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Nathan, and Nathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations, from Abraham to David, were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. See me after service. All right. All right. I heard if you, if you ever have trouble with names too, you just, you just pronounce them with confidence and people will never question you. So I did. All right. Now, why do we have all of these names? Well, I'll tell you. It's because the Jews were persistent when it came to ancestries and lineages. Now, why did it matter to the Jews who your dad or granddad was? Well, there are several reasons that we have scripturally. The first reason we find in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, a knowledge of ancestry was needed so that one could know where they were supposed to live. Remember in the book of Joshua, after entering into the land of Canaan, the land was divided up into tribal units. So it's essential that you knew what tribe you were in so that you knew where you were supposed to live. 
Another reason pedigree was important in the Old Testament was to know who the priests were. When the Jews began to come back from Babylonian captivity, many of them were claiming to be priests. So it was very important that they could prove it by lineage, by their ancestry, because God was serious about who the priests were. If anybody was trying to assume the role of priest and was not from the tribe of Levi, they could be in serious danger of trying to carry out those kind of responsibilities. So when the Jews came back from captivity, they had to prove who they were by their pedigree before they could assume a role like priest. And, and this lineal identification continues on into the first century. Though tribal division of land had ceased by this time, the Jews still had a thorough knowledge of their lineage. And we know this to be true because individuals throughout the New Testament are either identified by or they make mention of their pedigree. For example, Paul lets us know in Philippians that he is from the tribe of Benjamin. And we learn in the Christmas story that Mary and Joseph are traveling from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And the reason why is because there was a census that was taking place. In those days at times, people were required to report to the area of their ancestors to be registered for tax purposes. So Mary and Joseph returned to Bethlehem because Joseph was from the family of David. So pedigree was important in the Old Testament for tribal identification and for priestly identification, for tribal location, priestly identification, and was also important in the New Testament for tax purposes. Another reason genealogy was important to the Jews was because because it, it told a lot about the individual. And we know that to be true today, right? That's why sometimes we ask, who's that boy's dad? Or who's his granddad? For this reason, Matthew establishes Jesus' pedigree in the first 17 verses. He gives this list to reveal to his Jewish audience who Jesus is. So this morning, we are going to discuss this message that Matthew delivers from this passage. And there are four key truths that we learn from this passage about Jesus from his royal family. Number one, we learn this, that Jesus is Messiah. Now we're going to camp out here for a little while because this is one of Matthew's main reasons for writing this book and one of his main reasons for writing this, this passage that we have here that we're looking at today. Matthew wants to show, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that Jesus is Messiah. And notice he makes the point at the very beginning and the end of this passage, like bookends. In the, in the first verse of this book, he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And again in verse 17, he refers to Jesus as the Christ. You see right here, at the beginning of this book, Matthew affirms Jesus is the Christ, which is another way of saying he is Messiah. He is the one who is sent by God to bring salvation. And not only does he say it, but he proves it by listing out Jesus' royal lineage. He makes the point in verse 1, that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now, it should be obvious to us why he singles out these two individuals, right? 
Matthew is showing us here, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises that are made to these two individuals. First, let's look at David. What was promised to David? Do you remember? Look at 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13. I've got it up on the screen here. Listen to the promise made to David. He says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So God promised to put on David's throne a son who was going to rule forever. And you know and I know that was not ultimately fulfilled in Solomon, right? As glorious and majestic as Solomon's rule was, and even though he did build a house for God, a place for God, we know that it wasn't ultimately fulfilled in him, right? Though he followed in his father's footsteps and he ruled as king as well. And we know this, this promise was not ultimately fulfilled in any of the other kings from the dynasty. They each reigned for a time and then they died and their power was transferred to someone else. No, the ultimate fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7 is Christ. Matthew also says that Jesus is the son of Abraham. Matthew is reminding us here that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises that God makes to Abraham. He is the fulfillment of the substitution provided at Mount Moriah when the ram was caught in the thicket bush and substituted for Isaac. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He is the perfect substitute and sacrifice for Jews and Gentiles alike. It is also through him that all nations of the earth will be blessed. So Matthew is showing his audience here by referring to Jesus as the son of David and the son of Abraham, and then by listing his lineage from Abraham to David and from David to Joseph, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of the promises that are made to these two men. He fulfills these promises by his lineage and also by his person and by his work. Now get this, this is key. Unlike in the first century, Jews today have lost all record of their tribal ancestry. They have. They can't trace it at all. It's, it's, it's completely vanished. There is no way today that, that a Jewish person can prove that they are a descendant of David or Benjamin or any of the other tribes. That's all been lost. Not true of Christ. No one in the first century disputed or questioned his lineage. It is verifiable. You know, there's a lot of Orthodox Jews today who are still waiting for a Messiah to come. They've rejected Christ and they're looking for another. Now, I want you to get this. This is key. If anyone comes along today claiming to be the Messiah, he will never be able to prove it. He won't. Jesus is the last verifiable claimant to David's throne. No one else could ever come and lay believable claim to it and prove it. Christ is the last verifiable claimant to the throne. There's another 
thing that's extremely interesting about Jesus' lineage here that I want to share with you, and you're going to have to stick with me, okay? Put on your thinking caps. Stay with me. This is very interesting. This is worth you coming in today, okay? Now watch this. In two of the four Gospels, we are given Jesus' lineage. Matthew gives it in descending order, starting with Abraham and ending with Jesus. And Luke gives it in ascending order, beginning with Jesus and going past Abraham all the way back to Adam. Matthew gives us the royal line of Jesus through Joseph. And Luke, I believe, gives us the bloodline of Jesus through Mary. Now, some argue with this. They argue against the lineage in Luke being the bloodline of Mary because Mary's not mentioned. Instead, Luke mentions Jesus, father of, of uh, I mean, he mentions Joseph, Jesus' father again. But, but the problem with saying that Luke is talking about Joseph's lineage is that the genealogy is different from Matthew. Does Joseph have two dads? No. The reason I believe that Mary is not mentioned in Luke 3 is because she's already been designated as the mother by, by Luke many different times. It's implied here. And also the usual practice when listing one's genealogy is to mention the name of the father. So Luke mentions Joseph here because he's Jesus' father legally, though we've already made it clear Joseph has no biological ties to uh, Jesus. Jesus has no biological ties to his, to his earthly father. And, and then he gives the name of Joseph's father-in-law, Heli, in Luke 3. So what Luke is saying in Luke 3.23 is that Jesus is the son of Joseph, the grandson of Heli, Mary's father, Joseph's father-in-law. You got it? Still with me? Okay. And, and if you want some more on this, some more study on this, I've got a printout on your way out. You can pick one up. It's uh, written by Josh McDowell, and not the Josh McDowell over here, but the, uh, but the apologist, Josh McDowell. I'm not saying you couldn't write that. I know you could. But... Um, Josh McDowell, uh, the apologist, you can take one with you. It's on the different genealogies, so pick one up if you want to read more about this. But here's my point. Matthew gives the royal line in Matthew 1, and Luke gives the bloodline in Luke 3. The royal line always passed through the Father. So in Matthew's Gospel, he shows us the legal descent of Jesus as the King of Israel. Now, the reason why I say legal descent is because Jesus had no earthly father biologically, right? That's Christianity 101. Joseph was his father legally, but not biologically, because he was miraculously conceived and virgin-born. So though Jesus is the legal heir to the kingdom through his father, he did not have ties to a lot of those individuals in the list biologically in, in Matthew's gospel. He did, however, have blood ties to David through his mother. Okay? With me? You see, David had many sons. One of them was Solomon. One of them was Nathan. And Luke shows us here that Mary was a descendant of David's son, Nathan. So Jesus had blood ties to David through his mother, and he had royal ties to David legally through Joseph. Still with me? Okay. Let me tell you why this is important. When we read through the royal line in Matthew 1, there's a name that doesn't stand out to us, but it should, and it's the name Jeconiah, a.k.a. Coniah, also known as Jehoiakim. 
In Jeremiah 22, we are told about Jeconiah. Look at it up on the screen. You can mark it down and read it later. Jeremiah 22, 28, and verse 30. says this, Is this man, Coniah, a despised broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? Now, the person called Coniah here is also mentioned in some of your translations as Jehoiakim and others as Jeconiah. Jeremiah is, is talking about who Matthew's talking about in Matthew 1, Jeconiah. Look at verse 30. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days. Get this, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Now folks, that's a problem. If the covenant God made with David promises a future forever king, and Jeconiah's offspring is cursed, and none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David, then how in the world can we have a future Messiah? Jeconiah messed it up, didn't he? Or did he? No. Watch this. Jesus is virgin born. He's not an offspring of Jeconiah. He's legally in the royal line, but he has no biological ties to him. So Jesus has no biological ties to the royal line, yet he is legally a royal, and he is also a descendant of David by blood through his mother. Is that not incredible? This is what I call perfect fulfillment. Isn't it incredible how God took care of every little detail? It's amazing. Jesus is the Messiah no matter which way you slice it. That's what Matthew shows us here. He shows us that Jesus is Messiah. But not only that, he shows us that Jesus is God. Not only is he the Messiah, but he is God. Now you're probably thinking, Graham, where'd you get that from if you've read through this? Where do you get that he is divine here? Well, look at verse 16. Matthew says, And, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Now notice how carefully Matthew puts that here. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom, and the of whom here is in the feminine. So that's talking about Mary. Mary of whom Jesus was born. Not Joseph, but Mary. Matthew's making the point here, once again, Jesus, in a legal sense, was the son of Joseph, but he only had biological ties to his mother. He was miraculously conceived without Joseph's involvement. And this miraculous, extraordinary conception points to Jesus' divine origins. I do. Now, Matthew's going to expand on this toward the end of this chapter, but he and others indicate that Jesus' miraculous conception point to the fact that Jesus is divine, that he is the eternal Son of God who left the riches of heaven and who came to earth in an extraordinary way to live among us. Not only does Matthew show us in this passage that Jesus is the Christ, that he is Messiah, that he is divine, but he also shows us in this passage that he is a man. Jesus is fully man. How does he show us this? Look at verse 16 again. Jesus was born. Jesus was born. Now, when, when we think about Jesus' birth, 
we normally think about the virgin birth and that normally makes us think miracle right many think that his virgin birth is is a sign of Jesus's deity but the birth of Jesus is really a sign of his humanity what's truly miraculous is not the birth itself it's the virgin conception that's what we said in the, in the previous point Jesus's conception is the miracle once Jesus is conceived he goes on to really have a natural and normal childbirth minus the barn and the animals right yeah Jesus was truly human he was born of a woman he went through the natural birthing process he was in the bloodline of Mary so the fact that he doesn't have a biological father reveals his deity but the fact that he has a biological mother reveals his humanity so Matthew shows us through Jesus's birth into the bloodline of Mary through Mary that Jesus is a man Matthew also shows us by listing out Jesus's royal line fourth and finally that Jesus is Savior not only does Matthew teach that Jesus is the Messiah God and man but he clearly teaches us in this passage that Jesus is Savior this genealogy is designed really to shock us a bit if you knew the background of some in there and we're going to talk about a few it should shock you a bit but it's to show us this truth about Christ that he is Savior he is the Redeemer of all kinds of people of men of women of Jew and Gentile of all kinds and types of people have you ever looked at this genealogy in it you find men like Abraham and David who are good men but they had their issues then you have men like Ahaz who had absolutely no redeeming quality you got a guy like Judah remember Judah Though he, like Reuben, talked his brothers out of killing Joseph, it was Judah's idea to sell his brother into slavery in Genesis 37. You have Tamar mentioned here in Matthew 1. In Genesis 38, we learn that she was Judah's daughter-in-law who disguised herself and prostituted herself out to Judah, her own father-in-law. Prostitution, incest. And out of this sexually immoral act, she has twins, Perez and Zerah. And Perez is in the royal line. You have women like Rahab. Remember Rahab? She was a harlot, a professional prostitute. Now what on earth are these types of people doing in the Messianic line? You have women like Ruth. Some say, well, Ruth Ruth wasn't that bad no but she was a Moabite remember the story behind the Moabites these people were spawned out of incest remember Lot's daughters got him drunk and they laid with him and the the oldest had a son and from her father and she had a son from her father and she named him Moab who became the father of the Moabites Ruth was a Moabite she was from a group of people who were born of incest again what in the world are these types of people doing in the royal line of Christ notice how Matthew mentioned Solomon here it says in verse 6 and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah now isn't that interesting the way Matthew puts that why didn't he just say Bathsheba 
Matthew reminds us here of the scandalous way in which Solomon's parents got together. Remember, David got Uriah's wife pregnant and then tried to cover it up by having Uriah killed, and he was successful in having him killed. Adultery, murder. Now, there's more I could mention, but you get the point, right? But Matthew shows us here through this list that our God is a redeeming God and that Christ is Savior. He reminds us here that our God works in and through the acts of the righteous and the wicked. He's at work through the the faithfulness of, of Abraham and the failures of David. He's at work through godly kings like David and Josiah and Hezekiah and through godless leaders like Rehoboam and Ahaz. Through the acts of his patriarchs and through the acts of godless kings and harlots, God brings Christ into the world to restore and redeem it and to bring sinful individuals like these and like you and like me back into a right relationship with himself. With this list, Matthew reminds us that the good and the not so good, both the moral and the wicked, all need saving. Folks, the Savior has been provided. Savior has come to bring life to all of those who believe in Him. If you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Christ, for your salvation. I pray that God would open your heart right here and right now to this Messiah who has come. That He would open your heart to this Christmas message. In this passage and in the passage we'll look at next week, Matthew tells us that there was a time in history when Jesus, the eternal Son of God, stepped out of heaven and into our world, stepped out of eternity and into this finite world He created, and He took on flesh and became one of us. Though He had every right to remain where He was in the state He was in, though Christ did not have to do anything, He chose to do everything for us. He even went as far as giving His life away, took the punishment of sin that we deserve, and He did all of this so that we might have life if you're here this morning and you are not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation I pray that your allegiance would change from self to Savior this morning pray that you would make the decision right here and right now to turn from your sin and run to Christ cling to Christ place your faith and trust in him and in him alone for salvation let's pray